sometimes half-assed but always wholehearted film conversation. I'm your host, Dave Canfield, and with me, as always, is... Your other host, Michael Cockrell. I'm a host. No, are we co-hosts? Yeah, yeah we're, we're both hosts. Co-hosts. Yeah. I could never imply oh, anything else. Dave, um, what movie are we talking about today? Oh, goodness. We are talking about the newest film from Ari Oster, Bo is Afraid, starring Joaquin Phoenix. Following the sudden death of his mother, a mild-mannered but anxiety-ridden man confronts his darkest fears as he embarks on an epic Kafkaesque odyssey back home. Interesting. You know, I don't know if I 100% agree with that uh, <laughs> promotional blurb. Yeah, um, you know, I, I, I heard, uh, I mean, it's a basic outline. I heard that this is like one of the few movies to have Kafkaesque. <laughs> it's like officially described as Kafka-esque. I forget. I think I heard that on a podcast someone was talking about. I can't remember who, though. Um, what a movie this is. You know, Dave, I think we've all seen Mr. Oster's other films. Have you seen all of, the, all of his films? I know you have and you love I've them. seen. I've seen, yeah, I've seen the features uh, Midsommar, the director's cut of Midsommar and Hereditary, and also uh, All About the Johnsons, uh, which is... A, a really intense short that he did. Um, this would definitely has me chasing uh, more of his short subjects. Um, but we're because this was this that. was originally a short. Um, I don't know if you can actually say it was originally short, but he had a similarly named and similarly constructed short from a few years ago, which I think neither of us have seen. And uh, maybe I'd be interested to see it. But I this is a much more filled out full movie, Dave. And I heard from the lips of Ari himself, uh, that this was a movie he's been want- he's been working on for several years prior to even Hereditary being made, um, and I think it's interesting. But he didn't have the clout, didn't have the budget, didn't have the uh, the sway in Hollywood to make a film so ambitious and weird as I think we both agree this film is. But in general, we both love Ari Aster. You know that I said i think on our last episode that i consider hereditary to be one of the greatest movies of the 21st century i think it's the scariest movie ever made uh i was lukewarm on midsummer dave i you know i haven't seen the director's cut and you say that if i watch the director's cut i might change my mind yeah i think so the characters are fleshed out quite a bit more and what seems sort of a little bit of um uh, narrative cardboard in terms of the the characters and their motivations in the first uh, cut of the film, I, I I do think it becomes less so in the uh, in the latter cut. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, you know, the thing about Oster is, you know, I'm getting to the point with his stuff where it just makes me want to go have Thanksgiving dinner at his house and just. <laughs> Really, and just sit in the corner. There are reasons not just, to want to go have Thanksgiving dinner for what we've seen. Like, what, what is happening to this guy on a regular basis to make him write about the family and relationships, uh, and and identity and the psyche the what, way he does? I I consider him a, a master. You know, one of our millennial masters, Dave. He's a master of my generation. Um, Ariaster. I don't know if I would make films on his the subjects that he makes his films but i wish i could make films of the quality and uh construction that that he comes across i'm very 
I have a huge man crush on him, Dave. Uh, man crush on his artistic ability. And um, even though Midsummer was, you know, I I didn't love it. I still think that it's a genius movie, and I should shut my mouth until I I should shut my <laughs> trapper before I before I see the um, director's cut. Be careful about saying shut my shut your trap because uh, you know that just makes me think of some of the really dark stuff in Ari Aster's movie. Shut your trapper. <laughs> uh, and you know I was worried that I wasn't going to like this movie um, because of how I was lukewarm on Midsummer, and Midsummer has a lot of scenes that seem to be put into the film just to make you feel uncomfortable, and I don't necessarily like that kind of thing. Um, and like I and like I said, with more context and the director's cut, I might love it. But you know, I got to devote that time to watch that. And I was worried. Oh, is kind of sounds like Bo is afraid is going to go all in on scenes of that type. Uh, and we will talk about whether it does or not in our review section. So, do you agree with me, Dave? Is 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 Ari a millennial master? Do you think? Do you consider him a master? I mean, he's only done three films. It might be a little early, but um, I love him. I'm going to tell you this. I saw Martin Scorsese was, I believe, hosting a screening of Bo was Afraid. And uh, he has um, gone out of his way to recognize uh, Ari Oster. Um, and, uh, and, and many people have uh, in the wake of these three films. And I think he said something that is, is very pertinent uh, to this film and to Midsummer, um, And that is that there are films that get made that are kind of talked about and they're they're kind of the color of the moment and then they disappear and there are films that get made that don't get recognized uh uh, all that much and then 20 years later everybody talks about them and i think that ari oster is that kind of filmmaker and i i can't imagine the people that are out there right now being inspired by him to make movies um, just makes that the thought of that just thrills me. And it makes me uh, hope that he just keeps making movies. Yeah. I think um, me and Martin, you know, we're of similar caliber in terms of our abilities. <laughs> <laughs> we, I think that the thing that if you read uh, Martin Scorsese's commentary on like Marvel movies, he loves a person, a singular artiste, director who leaves their stamp on their movies. Um, Mr. Oster writes and directs all of this, all of his stuff so far. And um, I think that that is something to see like a director that has such, such as such a stamp, um, such a visible style, a a visual, visual style, a visual writing style. And I will tell you what I love about the, his ability to end the film. We talk so much on this podcast about how hard it is to end a story or end a film. And I think in all three of his movies, including Midsummer, he has nailed the ending. Like mm. Simone Biles gymnastics level nailing the landing. Um, yeah. In fact, I almost want to love Midsummer just because of the its amazing ending. Um, and I think Hereditary, Midsummer, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say this movie as well have definitive endings that come from the flow of the plot. They're very satisfying. They're consistent with the characters. And 
you know, but beyond all of that creative writing BS, they just feel right. They feel good. When you walk away, you don't have more questions. Or if you have questions, they're about things that matter to the film. Um, and that is just, it's so hard to have dense, complicated movies that are touching on a bunch of big subjects and then still na- nail that uh, ending so well. And that is why I really, he's, he's, he's an Eminem, you know, a millennial master. Well, and you know, you know, uh, the, the, the only other thing that I, I'd want to, I'd want to add to what you said is we watched a couple of videos of Ari Aster uh, roaming through video closets uh, online and picking out movies. And I think the Criterion Collection, he did that with them. And then he did it at this video store that I think is in France. And um, he's taking these movies off of the shelf and he's talking about them and talking about the directors. And as he's doing it, you realize that you are listening to somebody talk about movies that sometimes he doesn't even particularly love everything about the movie, but that he's honed in on something that's brilliant about the movie or important and he's learned from it and he talks like somebody who is a born director he he talks like somebody who looks at film as a language and um is learning how to speak it and uh, three movies in he's already awfully fluent so let's move on and talk about the cast dave in this film, there are some actors. They perform roles. In fact, they have one of... Uh, man, I feel like I'm on repeat here. But they have one of the world's greatest actors in this film. You're laughing at that? Are you kidding no. me? No, I'm just, again... It's like, it's so rare for back. me to use hyperbole, you know? Well, but we it's, keep, like, it's usually you saying things are the greatest and people are masters. But in this case, we have two people working together who like I have great esteem for. Ari Aster and Joaquin Phoenix. Oh, um, the most method of all method actors, perhaps. Well, he's still alive, so maybe not. Um, but yeah, I think only who else could have played this role? I think Philip Seymour Hoffman would have been so interesting to see him in this role, but really rest in peace, but really it's hard to think of anyone else in this role besides Joaquin Phoenix. Um well, you know, it's been said a lot in this day and age that, uh, or the, you know, uh, in in the last few years, that we don't have the kinds of actors that we used to have, um, because for all of the you know the star system and the glamour of 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 old Hollywood, there were just boatloads of amazing character actors and people who specialized in playing certain types of characters, and in a way, this is a role written. You know, um, I think like somebody like maybe a younger Stephen McAddy could have tackled this role. Um, I think uh, there are people, but you have to kind of be a a brilliant actor on the level of Joaquin Phoenix and yet be, you know, uh, I think of a certain age and... uh, of of an almost character actor type you know ability to portray somebody like the main character in this film yeah i i think that what i appreciate about uh joaquin phoenix's portrayal of Bo 
this is a very kind of removed intellectual movie, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, you get the idea that you are like ideas are being thrown at you more than just what you're seeing on screen, that there are themes and well, in the first scene of the movie, there's a man who just writes down guilt, right? Writes down guilty. So you know that themes are going to be thrown at you in this film. And in the lesser actor, you could see that overshadowing the performance. But Joaquin has a really good way of using his physicality. Like, Bo is a very weak individual. And you saw this in Joker 2, which I consider less successful on both fronts, both in plot and uh, acting. But even though he did a great job because he's a great actor, but you see how Joaquin in both of those films can use their physicality to bring a, a character to life, his body. So in this film, you see a chubby Joaquin, shirtless, and it reinforces the weakness and the um, lack of control that Bo has in his life. Whereas the dialogue is all very abstract. <laughs> You know, Bo is very distant and indecisive, so we don't get much from him. We, you know, we get him mumbling and reacting to things, but we get to see him be weak and indecisive. And uh, I don't know if Joaquin put on some pounds for this, but uh, just with his body, he displays that in the same way that he was emaciated in Joker. So it's a it's a trick that Joaquin knows well, and I know that uh, Ari and and Joaquin collaborated a lot and talked a lot, had a lot of phone conversations to get this character nailed down. And I think it is a strong, the fact that this character remains within the lines of this pretty heavy lifting thematic plot is a testament to how much uh, this director can keep an actor in line because Joaquin is not easy to keep in line. Have we ever talked about that? <laughs> like actors getting oh. out of control? Uh, well, I, it was, it's good that they got on the same page early and you know, he brought this character to life rather than bringing like, like when, if you look at Joker and I don't know why Joker's on my mind, probably because it's such another great example of Joaquin's physicality in that, in that movie. I feel like Joaquin kind of took that character over in this case. Uh, I think there's a perfect harmony between the performance and the director's intention, director and writer's intention to bring the story to life. Perfect harmony and how the character is, being portrayed on screen with where the admittedly very long and uh, surrealistic plot is headed. Well, there's a, there, there's a question for all you uh, listeners out there to kind of debate amongst yourself, be an interesting question. And that is that, has there ever been a Joker narrative, either in comic book form or in film form, that in which the Joker did not ultimately overshadow the narrative? I think the, the, that an argument can be made that the Joker sort of automatically is larger than sort of any story that you can try to put him in. Uh, not that there aren't some absolutely amazing Joker stories. I'm a bigger fan of the Joker film that Joaquin was in um, than, than, uh, than Mike is, but that's kind of the part of the fun of our show is we don't always agree 100% on everything. Um, and uh, thank heavens because... Uh, um, because why, Mike? I don't know. Do we want to keep talking about the task? Or It'd be the... pretty boring. It'd be pretty boring <laughs> if we always agreed. Well, what about so, Patty Lapone? Talk to me about Patty Lapone. Patty Lapone plays Mona Wasserman, who is uh, Bo's mother. It's Bo Wasserman. She's a fair character that looms large in Bo's life. Um, but the portrayal itself, I think, 
I liked a lot of the aspects of the portrayal. I think there's an element of mystery that is interjected into the character, whereas um, it didn't necessarily have to be the way that way. The script does that a lot, but I think um, that Patty Lapone, uh, I think she she does pretty she does well. She does well. She's one of the. I, I would talk specifically about scenes and things I like about her performance, but she is so integral to the plot that it's difficult to cite things that would not be spoilers. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, she's one of the great ladies of the stage, um, and uh, and of the Broadway stage, and you see that sort of command of her own physicality here, in creating uh, in creating what is, um, in its own way, sort of a larger than life character. Um, uh, in the in the film um you know moving on we have um uh amy ryan and nathan lane play grace and roger uh a couple that adopt uh Bo at one point or sort of adopt or attempt to nurse him back to health after uh after something happens um amy you'll remember of course from the office uh she's kind of the love of uh of michael's life uh, in that, um, and Nathan Lane, of course, again, another legend of of, of the stage, uh, who also makes movies and often makes very very good ones, and they're both great here. Yep, they do great. I think they are perfect side characters for this plot, and I think they had a particular type of look and person they were going for for comedic and plot purposes, and they they did they nailed it. Uh, but yeah, my my top level for this film would definitely be Joaquin's performance. Yeah. And I think Nathan Lane has done a great job with promotion too. He's such a likable guy. He's been out there uh, doing promotional interviews. I think he's even gone on a few talk shows, even though he's not, you know, what can we say? We love Joaquin, right? But he is not a great person to have an interview with. <laughs> um, you know, he's not a great person to promote a film. In fact, on occasion, he has like outright refused to promote films. Correct, Dave? So I, yeah, I can't quite remember, but I mean, you know, the infamous interview with him is the one that he did, which was a fake interview on David Letterman, where he came out in the beard and the sunglasses to promote "I am, uh, I am not here" or "I am still here." Uh, he's a, he's an artist, and he doesn't necessarily love the business end of it. I don't know if he would be offended by that. I, I'm not sure, but um, I totally feel feel that for sure you know the business end of things is not is never fun in fact we have that term the he hit him with the business end uh <laughs> meaning the end that's not so much fun so dave you know i think we've we've talked quite a bit already i think we should do some spoiler free reviews okay. of Bo is afraid why don't uh, you want me to go first sure sure i i don't i feel like i'm going to impl- influence you so I will say that this this movie is getting mixed reviews, right, from critics, and it's what like seventy percent. You said Dave on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, both critics and audience, which is kind of unusual. I think. Yeah, usually critics are. Yeah, they they don't. You know, an audience often hates things, and for an audience to like a movie, get a seventy percent, and it's a self selecting audience for any Ari Aster movie, right? But audiences usually, if something's weird, they kind of turn it off. I from that's been my experience. I don't know if you'll agree with that, Dave, but like. If a movie is not straightforward, you'll see that audience score go down. Uh, and the the critics, they kind of like things that are, you know, artsy. So it's getting kind of mixed reviews, but I love this movie. I like it quite a bit. I think there is a plot that is entertaining. I think the humor 
works. And I don't think you understand exactly what's going on the whole movie. You have to kind of embrace that mystery. We'll give our best ideas to help guide you if you're interested or preferably have already seen it. But I think that it has an emotional truth that will resonate with a lot of people, a, a truth that, you know, can can help you overcome some of the unexplained mysteries that you see in the visual element of the film. Visually, great production design, great sets. Um, there's really not too many special effects in the film, but where there are, they're not noticeable in, in a bad way. Uh, it is a light movie. It is a movie that uses extras very well. It's a movie that uses space very well. So when I say the visual is not always clear, I don't mean that in any technical sense. I mean it in the sense of uh, its purpose in the plot, which I think is why it's throwing off that 30% of critics and um, audience as well. Like we said, Kafka-esque is in the title. But for me, it perfectly worked if you just sit back and accept the images coming over your mind and think about the themes and relate to Bo and dig into that emotional truth. Um, I think you will enjoy yourself. And I do think the comedy lands. I, I'm always like, no one's ever laughing in theaters anymore. Dave was that COVID, but people were not laughing at our screening. Um, but I think it's hilarious. I think the comedy lands and uh, you know, Nathan Lane and Joaquin Phoenix have great comedic timing uh, as well as Amy Ryan. Um, I recommend you go see it. It is long, but I do recommend you go see it and just kind of let it wash over you and think about it later, perhaps while listening to Mind Frames. Wow. And good, good segue. Um, I agree with you um, uh, pretty much across the board um, and did before you started talking. Uh, you, uh, you kind of practically read my mind. I think that this film, you know, let's face it, any film that Ari Aster puts out for the next little while, uh, ever since Hereditary is, oh, he's got a film out, I gotta go to see what it is. And then people are going to, you know, approach it with the baggage of the, of the feelings about the previous work that they've done. Um, I think he's kind of one of that rare breed of director where people really do wait uh, on bated breath to see what he's going to do next. Uh, not only has he assembled an amazing cast for this film, but um, you really get the sense of an uncompromised vision with this film. There's animation in this film. There are um, various uh, set pieces that almost, almost feel like stories within the stories within the stories. There's so much complexity. There's so much humor. There's so much darkness and um, I think if, you, if, if I had to point out one big uh, spoiler-free um, reason for people to go see this movie, it's that uh, uh, what Ari Oster and his cast have done is to create a, a, a movie that feels exactly like you're looking through someone else's eyes at something. There's an emotional vitality and reality to what's going on um, in the character of Bo that uh, I just don't think you get very often in in movies that play in, with such high concepts visually as this one does. Uh, this is uh, absolutely uh, one of my favorite movies so far of, of the year. All right. 
Well, if you have not seen Bo is Afraid yet, you should immediately pause this and drive to your nearest uh, movie theater or stream it if it's streaming out by the time you listen to this and familiarize yourself with those images which we are about to attempt to crack open in the next spoiler-filled section. So uh, maybe watch the movie first and come back. And we're back, here to talk about, try to break apart this extremely, you know, I don't like the word dense. I don't like the word dense. I don't, I don't know if I consider this a dense movie. Um, but it's a long movie. It's a movie that is uh, not easy to quote-unquote understand. So let's try to, you know, um, clear away the fogs of our medicated minds, because, you know, we didn't take our water with our pills. Let's clear away that fog and see if we can try to parse through, you know, explain to our brains why we like this movie so much. I don't think you have to go too far, Dave, into the film. In fact, within the first five seconds. <laughs> or, the, you know, we have the movie opens with the birth scene, uh, which I like. You know, a lot of, it's not the, it's not, that's not that unique. But after the birth scene, we go to... Um, Bo as a man, and he's sitting in a psychiatrist's office, and the psychiatrist writes down, guilty. Uh, guilt is a theme in this film. Anxiety is a theme in this film. Um, and the guilt and anxiety you that might be originating from your parents um, is a theme in this film. You know, I we, we heard Ari Aster saying a quote that... Uh, paraphrasing a bit here it feels like we're inheriting a world that's awful but there's the indignation of the children not being more grateful um the sense that we feel guilty that we're not more grateful for their world this messed up world that we have uh and i think that that's an interesting place to begin a movie a birth followed by a guilty man and i guess the film is kind of an explanation of how we got from that pretty effed up birth uh to the guilty man. One thing we wanted to do is, you know, we, 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 we talked about this during our review period and we think that there may, like, I think some people are having trouble, Dave, grasping the premise of the film, the mm -hmm. world building construct of the film. And I'm not saying that that is the people's who may or may not be doing that's fault. It is the job of the creator of the writer and the people who make the, the film to bring people into that world. However, allow me to elaborate on what I think is going on with this world and why it works for me. No judgment. But I think what we're seeing in this film, Dave, is like an emotional perception of the world, a surrealistic viewpoint that is reflecting Bo's emotional perspective on the world. Um, you, you use the words, we're seeing the world through Bo's eyes. That's true. But I think we're even seeing it through Bo's emotions, if that makes any sense. Yeah, like, and that's a better uh, way to put it. But I know exactly what you're saying. And I think you're exactly right. And I think that that's where we're losing some people, which is fine. Like I said, it's the artist's job to bring you into that. Um, but as an explanation of why I loved it, I think that that explains why everything is heightened why everything is happening, everything happens for his happens for the worst, it's because 
Bo is a damaged individual, and this is the way the world feels to him. This is what we are shown. We are shown how the world feels for him. And everything comes down to it. You talked about generational trauma. You you got it right in there. And uh, everything comes down to his mother. His mother is pulling the strings behind every movement. If you look really close in one of the early scenes where Bo is in his apartment and his leaving his sad little life, symbols of his mother's company and his mother are everywhere. You know, he warms up like a TV dinner and it's like some joke. I can't remember what the TV dinner is, but it's like pathetic. And it's made by Mona Wasson Foods, right? So his <laughs> entire life, and you said it exactly in the intro to the spoiler-free section, the strings are being pulled on him. And you mentioned the therapist, and we learn later that, at least in Bo's perception, the therapist is being is controlled by the by the mother. Everything in this world is coming and controlled by the mother. And I th- there is a frustration there that people want to. There are breadcrumb breadcrumbs back to the relation to reality, right? Like we recognize this world. We live in apartments. We have mothers. We want to understand what's quote unquote really happening. But I will, I will posit to you, Dave, and to everyone else that what may or may not be happening on some other truer real world is indecipherable. And you just need to sit back and accept you are inside Bo's psyche. You, have, <laughs> you nailed it. I mean, and we spent a lot of time talking about this after we saw the movie. Normally, you want to establish for yourself exactly what the point of view is and what's real on screen and what might be in somebody's head and why, you know, this and why that you are not going to be able to do that in this movie. And yet I don't think it's the fault of the movie. I think it's literally what the movie's trying to do. Right. And, and does really, really well. And if, and if Ari didn't bring you in there, you know, you know that that's a flaw. Um, it didn't, he wasn't able to bring you into that worldview or get you to accept it, to accept that, that type of suspension of disbelief. And when I got out of the movie, I was looking over my notes. I loved it, you know, gut reaction. I loved it, but I was looking at my notes and I'm like trying to piece together the literal, the the linear plot. And me and you kind of argued over this, Dave, this is like an argument that Dave won. I'm pretty hard headed, but, uh, (laughs) eventually, you know, emotionally won that argument, Dave, and that like, you can't really piece together. There is a linear plot and there's um, just enough breadcrumbs to be frustrating, which I think is a genius tactic to keep you interested, by the way. Oh, just enough breadcrumbs to keep you interested. Uh, but ultimately, I come down on the side of what's really happening to Bo, uh, besides these fantastical images that we're seeing, it's indecipherable. It's unknowable. You just need to climb inside that brain and go along for the ride. And I think it's a ride that you will you will enjoy. So all the people out there trying to find the key to unlock the door or trying to understand what all the symbolism is or trying to see like what level of surrealistic representation something might have. I, my, my advice to you is if you want to enjoy this movie, which you don't have to, if you want to enjoy this movie, let that all go. Embrace the, the, embrace the mystery and just come inside the emotional, psychological, viewpoint of Bo Wasserman. Yeah, he is he is just as confused and unhappy and agitated and and anxious uh as anything uh, uh you might be in trying to and trying to you know watch uh him go through his journey. And uh that 
is a, a real a, a real accomplishment. Um, you know what occurred to me listening to you while you were talking? You know, we have this veritable flood of stuff online now and on Amazon and on all the different streaming channels about Bigfoot and about um, government conspiracy and about UFOs. And, uh, you know, I'm dealing with some of that stuff. In my- you mean like late night on the Hitler channel where Hitler had alien <laughs> weapons? <laughs> I deal with some of that stuff on my, uh, in my master's thesis in theological studies. And what this movie does is, yeah, it lays a lot of trail for a lot of breadcrumbs, but they're not going to lead you anywhere, folks. They are there to remind you that there's a central truth that's important. And the central truth is this, uh, is this person uh, that is so brilliantly brought to life and not all the particulars of whether or not everything that we see is 100% rooted in uh, time and space or what we call reality. So we might not know exactly, like this This reality might not line up to ours 100%. Um, and we might not be able to figure out a way in which it does, but I think we can look at this film and figure out a way in which Bo is broken. We know that something is wrong with Bo. This is not a healthy world. This is not a healthy Bo that he's living in, right? Um, and like we kind of already hinted at, a figure that looms large in this story is, and that's an understatement, is Bo's mother. The entire plot is driven by Bo's relationship with his mother. Bo is a fundamentally broken person. And he's not wounded. You know I love wounded people. Like Paul Schrader's films, uh, like the Ethan Hawke's character in, in, in First Reformed, or the Card Counter, played by Oscar Isaac in, in uh, The Card Counter, both movies we covered. You know I love wounded men, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> as 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 lead characters in 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 narratives but bo is wounded in a very different kind of way you know i described him as broken he you know didn't seem to have got got any love or nurturing from his mother whatsoever coming back to what you know you called out generational trauma there um and it as we see at the end of the movie it seems like his mother is enable i'm sorry is unable to love him unable to give love and what makes it truly intergenerational is we see her mother who she describes as being the same way in a very uh, in a very unflattering portrait of her mother so in this world that we're inhabiting with 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 Bo, all of the world being controlled that that town is named after his mother it is completely to Bo, everything is dominated by his mother he has never gotten past that lack of love from his mother. His mother is pulling the strings and manipulating things uh, throughout the whole world. She controls the entire world because that's the world we're living in, his psychological state. Um, and that trauma is front and center. And Bo is just trying to avoid it and be ambivalent and have no real control, just be a log floating down the river of trauma. Um, it starts with the first scene. We already talked about the first scene, Dave. Bo is coming being born, emerging from his mother. We don't see it because it's completely black. We ha- we see through Bo's eyes. One of two times that we see through Bo's eyes, interestingly enough, from the film. We see um, 
his perspective, his literal perspective. And we hear the mother saying, why is he crying? You know, she wants everything to be perfect. She doesn't consider Bo like a thing that she can love or relate to. He's a problem to be solved. He's uh, he's always a problem, just like he is throughout her life. And we kind of see what her plan is at the end. Um, so it starts off immediately from birth. Like there's just anxiety, guilt. He's not making her happy. Nothing will make her happy. Uh, and he never develops as a person or functions as a person. He only has avoidance mechanisms. Um, I think through all of the acts, and you know, we're not it really. It only has three acts, but we're going to say there are five acts for the sake of sake of uh, simplicity, just to talk about the plot. You know, in all of the acts, we see we see that Bo doing that. We start. Yeah, yeah. In, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. Just to just to go over, I just want to summarize real briefly what these acts are. Okay. Yeah, because we're trying to impose some order. Like we said, we're going to kind of call this <laughs> yeah. an explainer situation. Normally we talk about themes, but I think this movie is so lacking in traditional narrative that it's more helpful to like kind of establish some, create our own fake structure on top of it. So we're kind of creating these acts. So go ahead and describe the, the type of acts we're talking about. Okay, we are in the spoiler section here. So... Um, you know, all, uh, Katie, Car- Katie bar the door. I'm about to, I'm about to reveal a major plot point. You know, um, we have seen Bo in his hellhole of an apartment in this uh, hellhole part of the city that he lives in. And, um, you get a sense of him trying to sort of like hunker down and, and, and remain safe when he gets, uh, notified that his mother has passed away. Uh, and he's going to need to go home and uh, try to get a hold of her. Uh, this is on the heels of a visit, which is thwarted by the fact that his keys to his apartment are stolen out of the lock at one point on the way to the airport. Um, this uh, leads him eventually outside where he's leaping um, uh, across the, the carnage that is the outside world, a uh, world outside of his apartment, and he's hit by a car, and that car is driven by Grace, and Grace takes him back to he wakes up in the uh, uh, house that Grace and her uh, husband Roger run. Um, eventually, he finds himself needing to run away from Grace and Roger and pursued by a crazy Vietnam vet, not Vietnam vet, Afghanistan vet named Jeeves, uh, into the forest where there is a play. And the play at one point appears to be about his life. And he ends up again being chased by Jeeves. And that's when he is able finally to get back home to his mother um and uh, we're going to talk about the ending a little bit later there's one other place but uh let's start talking about this apartment and this odd little family that he becomes uh part of um mike sure so i think we could call the apartment act one um you know, for purposes of our discussion. It's a place that's claustrophobic. It's a place that is dangerous, like Dave said. And this is where he is trying to get out of... I think the the purpose of this segment is to introduce us to 
his the ever presence of his mother subtly with the phone call in the images like the um like we did her <clears throat> like i said i think the purpose of the the apartment is to introduce us to that as well as get us into bo's head so bo is feeling insecure he doesn't feel safe he's trying to get to his mother we're introduced to ideas that he might actually be trying to avoid getting to his mother because there are so many things happening in quick succession that block him from it um so we get the i think that's the purpose of the apartment scene which it's more than a scene but he gets it ends like you said he gets hit by grace in the car and he goes to live with grace and roger um so i think the reason it transitions to that act is that um you know the apartments we got the purpose of the apartment to set up the anxieties and the nervousness in the worldview and also the ever presence of the mother and the fact that the mother has possibly died right so that's the that's setting up what he wants to do he wants to get to his mother what we're being shown in grace and roger's house so all of these acts you know kind of have something in common and i think what they have in common is there is a glimmer of hope and then it is dashed <laughs> and then we are moved on to the next disaster and i think that is precisely how Bo views the world um, and the glimmers of hope only get more and more extreme as we move along in the movie. So when we start off at the apartment, I think the glimmer of hope there is the hope that he's going to go see his mom and it's going to be okay. And, you know, he talks to his therapist and it's like, well, the, the therapist is kind of suggesting that he shouldn't go see his mom. But, uh, you know, there's some hope for stability. He's got new medication. He makes it across the street and back in. But this is our introduction to Bo's mindset and in Bo's mind, which is our world again in Bo's mind, all hope ends up disastrously and horribly. And it is nothing but an assault on him. So we see that his apartment, which was like a sanctuary, somewhat of a sanctuary, a pathetic one becomes everyone's going into his apartment. It was the place he kept the world out. The worst possible thing happens. Literally everyone in the world off the street goes into his apartment. Right. Um, so it's a kind of an introduction to what we're going to be seeing with Bo. And it ultimately ends with him beginning his journey to his mother and getting hit by a car. Yeah. And the car is driven by Grace. And Grace is. Um, Act you know, two. <laughs> is Grace is part of Act two. But Grace is married to Roger. And he wakes up in their house because Grace hit him with the car. And. Um, he discovers very quickly that Grace and Roger, uh, that number one, he discovers that Bo does that Bo is really messed up um, and he needs to recuperate, um, even though he's desperate to make it, you know, back home to see what's going on with his mom. Uh, and at the same time, he discovers that he's been set up in the room of the teenage daughter of, uh, of the family. Uh, who is uh, really pissed off, uh, not only because he's taken over her room, but because her parents have not moved beyond the death of her big brother. Uh, and they do uh, uh, jigsaw puzzles of him in his military uniform. And there's a big picture of him and they talk about him. And um, it turns out there's a guy living in a trailer out in the... Uh, uh, <laughs> out on the driveway named Jeeves, who's nearly psychotic 
And uh, the answer in this family to everything is to chemically castrate your emotions. And that's kind of what they do is they're always, uh, you know, tackling Jeeves and trying to force feed him meds. They're, they're you know, trying to feed meds to uh, the daughter. They're trying to feed meds to Bo and each other. And all the while, Bo is just trying uh, to get home. Now, why does the film propel us into this act? Um, you know, it's very odd. You, you might think maybe it's a commentary on the state of the American nuclear family or on the idea of the nuclear family at all. You might think you know, the kind of family that Bo never had um, or might have wished he could have had. Um, or you might just think that it's, uh, that it's, that it's a, a commentary on, again, his mother's control. It seems like these people work for his mother. There are intimations of that. So, um, you know, Mike, I'm going to call the, the purpose of this narratively up for grabs. Are you comfortable with that? I think so. Um, you know, I think it's it's just like with the apartment and like all of the like little acts, little vin- they're not vignettes, but like all of the acts that we're, we're dividing the film into. It's Bo refuses to make a choice of being happy or or being or being indecisive. <laughs> I guess I guess he's indecisive and he doesn't choose positivity or happiness or making his own stand at any point. And I think this is one of the many mother figures that we're going to see. Grace is one of the many mother figures we're going to see in this film. And he really shouldn't be there. It's not a hospital. They have no right to keep him there. Right. Um, It's not his family. They have no right to deny him his request to drive to his mother, which he does. And it's a major film point, major plot point. Um, I think what we're seeing here is the world. It's again, like you said, there's intonations that's controlled by his mother. Everything's controlled by his mother in this world. Um, I think this is a possibility of life that Bo. Yeah. I think it's a little taste of life that Bo could never have had. Um, and that's why he visits this home and it's there to, I think the point of this act is to like, further shatter our belief in uh, a happy ending or a fact that there could be a good comforting motherly figure in Bo's life because it does end with this mother trying to kill him and a, the, a death in the family uh, which and then it, we move on to our different act so if the apartment is kind of like an internal sanctuary for Bo this is like kind of the sanctuary of an ideal family even though it's far from ideal and in this world again, controlled by his mother because everything is. Um, it's just like another dashed hope because Bo would not, you know, wouldn't make a decision, basically. Yeah, Bo winds up actually getting blamed by the mother for the death in the family and chased out of the home by Jeeves, who's gone completely berserk and uh, armed himself sort of like a, a Terminator executioner type figure. And he's uh, running madly, trying to catch, uh, trying to catch Bo, and uh, Bo runs into the forest. Now, you know the the cool thing about forests in in movies is they're usually pretty, you know, simple metaphors for being lost. That's usually what forests are, or they might be sanctuaries. And here we get both. You know, at first. 
Bo is is very, you know, lost and he's been wounded and things aren't working out at all for him and we're frightened for him. Um, and then he runs into somebody and this uh, person takes him back to an encampment in the forest, which is uh, put on by a traveling theater troupe that only does their shows in forests um, for each other and whoever happens to show up. Um, needless to say, it, the whole thing feels pretty surreal. Um, it gets even more surreal once Bo realizes that the play he ends up watching that night is uh, seems, anyway, like it's about him. So the film at that point takes us on a journey that involves some really stunning animation, um, wherein he goes off uh, on his own in life and he finds a, a, a woman and they connect and they have children and everything seems, seems like it's going to be very happy now for our friend Bo, or at least the Bo that's being talked about in the play. But unfortunately, um, a, a huge catastrophe happens which separates the whole family and Bo is left wandering uh, the earth trying to reconnect with his family. And the play ends as Bo, the real Bo in the audience, realizes that the two actors on stage being read to by the masked figure uh, who is playing, um, well, not sure exactly who she's playing, but he realizes that those are the children. And the two children that he never had came down to start a dialogue with him in the real world. Um, only for that to end when the kids have to look at him and say, wait a minute, you never actually could have had us. And that leads us uh, into what? A situation where um, Jeeves jumps out of the forest, starts attacking everybody. <laughs> I, I know you're, you're, I think, uh, I think we're starting to see why some people got a little lost with this film. Um, <laughs> I think so. I, I think you've like, definitely not seen this film. This podcast is not going to make any sense to you at all. So yeah, this poor lost bow wanders out of, I, I'm not going to rehash everything you said, but it, we're, it, we're kind of like in the Island of Misfit Toys, right? Yeah, uh, this this act is taking place in the Island of Misfits Toys kind of environment where all these lost people are coming together to put on this play. They're people who I think one character says in this like we're orphans, but some of us still have parents. So it's like a hope for Bo to move beyond his indecision, his trauma that's coming from his mother. And he is still being pursued by Jeeves. But uh, yeah, and then Jeeves catches up to him. But he sees himself in this play, Dave. And since we are in his mind we see him seeing himself in the play uh, and we live, he, we see him living himself in the play, but he realizes as he gets further and further into seeing the play where eventually he thinks, wait, I'm watching the play. What if this play is really my life? <laughs> you know, it's kind of what's happening there, I think. And, yeah. but then he remembers, wait, this can't be my life. I never did anything, including, had sex to be able to produce children. Um, 
So I think Bo snaps out of it. And I think what's being kind of teased in Bo's, I think what's Bo's being teased with in this act is the ability of art as an escape. I, I haven't heard a lot of people talk about that, interesting enough, but I think that, you know, Bo, one means of escape is beyond being taken care of a mother, where there is a mother in this film. I think her name is Penelope and she's, she's young and pregnant. I think he could have art as a mother to live a life that is unfulfilled through the art. And he sees that in the play. He sees himself living, even though the play does kind of get infected with some of his negativity, it does come around in the end and have a somewhat positive ending. But he knows I can't, this isn't really me. I don't have this story. I'm not Spider-Man or in this case, (laughs) a person who has children and finds them. Um, and that's like ultimately disappointing for him. And, you know, and we're all disappointed in that way. We want to be Spider-Man or whoever choose your, you know, cool Modi, whoever you want to be. Um, I think that's what's going on in this, in this forest act, but his past is always so much better than me that we should cut all that other stuff. I said out, um, I don't think we have to. I don't think we have to. I think that's fine. I kind of left you to dry with the notes because there's like no, we have like hardly any notes, by the way. So it's like normally I like we like we'll say like this is what we're going to talk about here, but it's so hard. So I think I think I left you out to dry there. I think what you said is is like an accurate representation of what we see, and I'm like reading a lot into it, which may or may not be accurate. I, I, like, um, I liked a lot of your I liked a lot of your basic basic like you know stabs there. You're you're. You're looking for insight, man. I mean, it's what we do. So. And and why he gives the um, the mother statue to Penelope, uh, you know, is Ari Aster saying there that art is his true mother, that making films is his true mother? All right, now we're really going off into conspiracy world, Dave. Do you like that? <laughs> well, I'll tell, well, I tell you what, I like, man. I love watching. I love watching a filmmaker like this go big, and I would rather watch a great big film that's kind of confusing and i'm not 100 percent sure if it all works exactly um, so well, you, you're like i you 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 questioned me i didn't actually say it when i did my review because i wanted to keep it positive but i wrote are people punishing ambition it's like this is an ambitious movie and i think that needs to be rewarded you know does it land 100 percent of the time no, but does it land 93% of the time? I think so. Yeah. And like, don't we want people to make ambitious films with ambitious exactly. plots and ambi- ambitious images? Um, I do. So exactly. I, to me, the fact that it's ambitious I, I, and goes out there and tries something new, such as it's not all new, but you know, it's, it's putting things together in a new way. I love that, even well, if it doesn't work for me all the time. And yeah, and you know what's funny? I feel like our last episode when we talked about Renfield, again, we were talking about a film that, yes, there were ways we could imagine it. It might have been more more uh, in depth or more interesting, or even funnier or more coherent. But it was a lot of fun, and and I I, I think that this idea, you know, do we not miss going to the movies? I mean. I, I don't want to say you can't do bad reviews of movies at all. I, I'm not in implying that, but, but just that, man, you know, it's a treasured experience. We live in an embarrassment of riches right now when it comes to people trying 
to do stuff with movies in an unforgiving climate financially. Um, you get the Writers Guild strike going on right now. Um, all sorts of all sorts of things assaulting the industry. So, man, let's uh, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. No, uh, it, it, yeah, I agree for hundred um, percent. So we have our Forest Act, and I, I I do like this act, though it is like the most mysterious part of the film to me, and I don't a hundred percent really understand what the what the point of it is or why it's in there but i do love it nonetheless you know because we are in the mind of a very disturbed individual and i don't think you can expect to and this might be a little bit of a cop out but i don't think you can expect to understand everything but i definitely felt the love of art and the escapism of art coming through from Bo in this scene and i think that's a very important part of you know working through your anxiety working through your guilt um, doesn't work for Bo. He gets transitioned onto the next segment. Unfortunately, his past catches up with him that trauma from his mother cannot be escaped. Her agents are ever at his heels. Um, and ultimately in the next scene, I think we meet his mother, not the next scene, but the next act of our like forcing structure on us. He, he meets his mother and I don't remember exactly how he gets there, but he arrives to his mother's, uh, palatial home. Um, which is in the forest too. Interesting enough, it's kind of isolated, maybe like an exurb or something. Like he hitches a ride out of the forest in a car, right? I mean, it's like I can't remember honestly. Uh, ambiguous, yeah. I'd have to check my notes. I forget, but he he, he eventually <laughs> ends it, and the, this last part is so over, you know, it's so powerful that it's kind of like overshadows the transportation elements between the different acts. Um, but we see the we see we see the. Um, we see the home of the uh, of his mother, uh, which Elaine calls the the lair of the dragon. When they go into her bedroom, I love that. Um, a very interesting character. Uh, we we see Elaine, and you know we haven't talked about this David all yet, and that is there are flashbacks throughout the film to a cruise that Bo went on, where he meets Elaine, a free spirited young lady who's like his first crush, and yes. also to an memory of him being in the bathtub with his mother around and another boy that looks like him. So those two images have flashback. He, he called the latter his recurring dream with his therapist. Anyway, we meet Elaine as an adult at his mother's house. The funeral has already taken place. Uh, Shiva Steve has already packed up the food and the chairs. That's the company that was hired to um, Shiva Steve's. Yeah. Shiva Steve is what the van says out front as they're picking up the, uh, the um the chairs and things and one of the things that Bo was speaking of Shiva uh you know one of the things Bo is made to feel guilty about is that um he's constantly getting calls from who he calls Dr. Cohen but Dr. Cohen always tells him he's his mother's lawyer and that he needs him to get there as soon as possible because it's shameful that his mother has not been buried yet it was her wish to be buried when he arrives and I think that the implication is being he quotes I think that you know, he quotes like Jewish customs that you should bury them the same day they die, right? Or within the next, before the next sunset or something like that. And like, he, that's an element that, of guilt and shame that Bo feels and is like called out on by his by his doctor. And when we, we get there, it's too late. She hasn't been buried yet, but the funeral is over. We see her headless body um, there. But shocker, Dave, we find that the mother is not actually dead. It's all a part of course 
of course. It's all a part of her elaborate scheme uh, to trick and test Bo of his loyalty. Of course his mother can't be really dead. Bo it cannot exist without his mother. His entire world, his entire life, his entire psyche is the guilt and uh, inadequacy he feels because of that generational trauma originating from his mother and ultimately, as we learn, his grandmother. Um, so, of course, she's there alive to further harass and torment and make him feel uh, inadequate. Uh, so, yeah, it's revealed that she's been manipulating the thing the whole time. And we can put together all of the things we've seen before to know, oh, man, she's been manipulating this. She's all powerful. We see the pictures of um, uh, Roger and Grace as employees, even Emily, Elaine, I'm sorry, even Elaine says she was an employee uh, at one point of her mother so he knows everything's been controlled and manipulated from his mother at least in his mind like again we don't know real reality well it's indecipherable but from what we're told yeah his mother has been manipulating it the whole time and of course he has his first sexual encounter with elaine right before we meet the mother again kind of going out of order here dave but uh importantly he figures out that he can't he doesn't actually die when he has he has sex um in a Have very uh, awkward scene. One of his anxieties fueled by his mother, that we, we haven't mentioned yet, is that she tells him that his father died because he has a heart condition that he dies when he comes, when he achieves orgasm. Um, and she tells Bo, we see her telling Bo that in a flashback, um, that he has the same condition and that he cannot have sex, which, you know explains why he, he knew he couldn't be the fathers of those fictional children in the play, why he was snapped out of that play's reality into his own reality, because he knew that, oh, this doesn't line up because I can't have children. But we learn that he actually can finish successfully, don't we, Dave? Because he has sex with Elaine. Uh, though well, success and... who who successfully is in question, yes. And well, whether or not you want to cover you want to re- reveal that spoiler is the spoiler details, Dave, I'll leave it up to you. Yeah, so it turns out he can come, but just like with everything in his life, it ends disastrously for reasons which I hope you experience yourself in the theater. Um, But mom's still alive. Of course, mom is still alive. Uh, And she's extremely disappointed with all of Bo's inadequacy throughout the whole film. All these reasons he couldn't get to her, failing the tests, which it seems like he was being tested by her at uh, Roger and Grace's. So she's, of course, extremely dis- disappointed and reveals the that her mother never loved her, uh, kind of giving us the hints of genera- uh, of uh, generational trauma that we've kind of seen throughout this film and perhaps others, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, so Bo meanders around. He's indecisive. And uh, he starts to build up more and more, almost like what you'd call courage, you know, Dave. I don't know if you felt this way either, whether he's being just pushed and pushed by his mother towards this direction but he ultimately kind of gets enough courage or is pushed hard enough by his mother depending on your interpretation to ask about that recurring dream that we talked about where he sees a boy that looks just like him go up into the attic and uh spoiler that wasn't a dream that was a memory and it is revealed to us that um this boy went into the attic I believe his name is Harry. He has a tombstone downstairs, and we hear him referred to in dialogue. This boy went up into the attic, and 
up there, he lived with his father. And um, Bo, depending on your interpretation, gets the courage or is cajoled enough by his mother to go up there and see Harry, who, by the way, is Joaquin Phoenix and looks identical to Joaquin Phoenix, um, starved, chained, and the father is up there, Dave. Um, yes. And the father is not the same possible father or person that knew the father in the forest. It, the father very distinctively doesn't resemble uh, Joaquin Phoenix. Um, it's hard to see the, the resemblance at all. Well, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you, 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 you can go ahead and tear the condom off, Dave. The dad I mean, is a cock. He's nothing but a penis and balls. Um, yeah, boy, we're going to have to mark this as not monster yeah, not hiding in this attic. At which point Jeeves breaks in and enters into a, a, a battle to the death with the giant uh, uh, cock and balls. Um, that involves a lot of gore and, and the cock and balls gore. wins. By the way, yes, the cock and balls wins. Um, why are we Why are we telling you this? Uh, it's our job, believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen. To we can try to help. Things. We can try to help make some sense of that if if so required. Like I said, you know, there are there are so many phallic things in this movie in terms of things that point to his anxiety about sex and his uh gender identity and 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 just so many so so many things that um uh you could really say that sigmund freud i don't know how sigmund freud felt about the movies in general i think he really would have liked this one <laughs> i don't know uh i mean there's no uh, potty training in this movie but i mean Let's let's like you know I'm gonna I'm gonna break it down. I, I you know I don't like to do this, day, but in my opinion, the boy that we see in the recurring dream is not his twin brother, despite the I fact that he has it. his own name and he does seem to have a headstone downstairs in the house. All those things point to him being a character, an independent character. I think that this is a point. This is that this character is Bo's projection of his own lack of confidence. Yes. This is this is the point at which Bo's confidence was snuffed out and Absolutely. chained forever into the attic. And related to that killing of confidence, maybe because it was the subject in question of when it happened at that bath time, is the father also chained up there. And the dark truth about the father is, or at least what the mother wants him to believe, um, like the man in the forest might be a sign that the father isn't just this, by the way, that the father was something more. Um, and we see that man occasionally, by the way, looking at Bo from a distance. So is that some sort of memory of the father of what the father was? Some early memory? Maybe. We don't know. But at least what the mother has told Bo, in which may or may not be true, is the father is nothing but genetic material for Bo. A yeah. cock and balls will do the job. Um, and that is the dark secret that perhaps Bo, like was the final boldness of Bo, right? Of questioning as a child. And that's why he has that recurring dream. I think uh, that that's, a, I think that that's, that's a good way to unpack all that. And I mean, let's face it. If we go back and we watch the movie again, you know, we'll, 
we'll, you, you could almost like start, you know, if, if you aren't careful with this movie, you're going to wind up like one of those guys that converts his entire house into <laughs> like one of those yarn boards, you know, and whiteboards yeah. and newspaper clippings. Um, and it's so strange because I think it's pretty obvious what is going on in the film, but tying it to the, uh, tying it to the imagery is not so easy it, because I think there's like an emotional truth that just rings through an emotional message, like almost an emotional psychological, like a plot, you know? Um, but I do understand why people are frustrated by that aspect. So yeah. that's basically my read on that scene. Um, that's what I was thinking of that scene. Why Jeeves attacks him, why they get into a fight, why Jeeves exists at all. I don't know, a projection of his fear of consequences from his mother, from the, you know, his mother's plans. I, I don't know, but um, it's definitely a memorable, memorable image. And I did not expect to see that up there, but have we ever seen, is there another movie that does that? You know, it's kind of a way of thinking of about movies. an absent father. Yeah. There are lots of movies that have giant mother monsters. Uh, Peter Jackson's dead alive is one. Uh <coughs> Um, you could probably make some sort of argument that attack of a 50 foot woman is sort of the embodied, you know, um, you know, embodiment of the female run amok in the, in, 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 in you know, free of its, uh, f- free of its, uh, um, inhibitions, <coughs> excuse me, but this is not, yeah, I, I, I will say that it's not a father monster. It's a giant penis. So it's reduced down to the basic reproductive function. And I think that's critical for understanding what the mother is trying to tell Bo, that his father was nothing but the reproductive function, um, which kind of ties into the anxiety she plants in him. Whereas there, maybe there's more to the story than that. Of course, there's always more to the story, but indecipherable, probably. You just got to go and see what you think when you watch the movie. Um we do see the man, you mm. know, the father, apparently the kid asks, where's dad? As if he knew him, um, the young beau slash Harry. There is one final act, Dave, and we could have spent like five hours on this podcast, like an hour on each of these quote unquote acts, except for perhaps the forest one, which is really the least clear to me. But there is one final act and the movie does lead you to kind of think that Bo is gaining confidence, both because he went up the stairs and, you know, he's asking more questions. He's being more direct with his mother in that last scene, that last act or scenes. Um, But there is a final scene where Bo gets on a boat and he attempts to flee in a boat with an outboard motor. (laughs) And uh, he ends up on trial. He ends up in a arena where everyone is watching him be on trial from his mother and maybe this is how Bo feels all the time he feels like his inadequacies his guilt his lack of um living up to his mother's expectations that his entire life is on display and on trial at all times and even despite his attempt to escape on that boat there's nowhere to go the motor breaks and he's stuck in the middle of this arena being judged and and thrown accusations at him and at the start of the trial, Dave, he has a distantly fading defense attorney. His last, perhaps, 
bastion of self-respect and defense. Like it's called the defense. It says the word defense by it. And that fades and fades and fades until eventually it's the throat is cut and it's murdered. He has no more defenses, no more self-respect. And the mother's accusations uh, thrown at us by David Kind's Dr. Cohen, who, as Dr. Cohen reminds uh, throughout the um, film to Bo when they quote-unquote talk on the phone, that he's not a doctor, he's an attorney. You know, he's not there to heal Bo. He's there right. to provide, to accuse <laughs> in this trial he's there he's the prosecutor he's there to prosecute Bo on behalf of his mother he's not a doctor like uh, that's going to bring any sort of healing and well, uh, um it has a pretty disturbing ending the movie it, it does have a pretty disturbing ending and one of the things i think that's kind of disturbing about the trial is that um the trial takes on almost a little bit of a ritualistic quality and um um, there's enough made of the of the um, ethnography of Bo and his family. They're Jewish. That there's a sense of like sort of a, a a spiritual judgment being laid down, like something that has kind of an a, 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 a the whiff of eternity about it. And um, we see Bo desperately trying to get away in this boat uh, that won't cooperate. That seems stuck. And then um, there's a very brief moment, and we're not really sure how long. Mike and I have tried to sort of parse it out in our heads, um, but uh, we don't really know where Bo just sort of stops struggling. Um, and whether that's an act of despair or, or uh, uh, a moment of peace, we're, we're not really sure. We tend to think it's probably a little more uh, of, a, of a sad resignation. Uh, and the boat sort of uh, explodes into midair and Bo winds up underneath the boat and we listen to him drown uh, as the credits roll and drown he does. The boat stops moving and Bo is no longer. Uh, it's a very disturbing ending to a film that really was probably really hard to market. I wouldn't call Bo is Afraid a horror film um, nor would I just call it a dark comedy. Um, it sort of have, has too many elements of too many things. Um, but unlike most films like that, it, it, it really has a sense of wholeness about it. And the, uh, uh, the, you know, Bo, uh, uh, Bo's moment at the end is, uh, to my mind, absolutely, absolutely uh uh horrifying <coughs> yeah i would love to see the movie again to you know for some reason i felt hope at the end of the movie but i don't think that that is merited i think that uh, now that i reflect upon it the images and my own notes and i think about myself watching the movie and then i think about myself watching the movie and i realize i never had children no i mean, i'm sorry i'm getting lost in the plot no I, I i when i think about myself watching the end of the movie i don't remember feeling hope i think i may have superimposed the hope on later so what i'm saying is i'm not ruling out the possibility of there being a hopeful ending in which Bo has a last minute conversion to strength before ultimately be, being overcome um, I don't think that's what happened. I think that he has overcome the boat flips upside down and he will never 
turn that boat over. It will suffocate him. And I think that's Bo's whole life. It was unavoidable. The generational trauma um, was too great. The weight from the mother and the grandmother was too great, and he could not flip that boat over and escape from it. Upon which I would like to talk about another movie, Dave. Uh, you know, <laughs> we talked about Hereditary. We usually have a segment where we talk about other movies this reminded us of. And I think this is a perfect time to talk about Hereditary because Hereditary has a very similar ending in my view. You know, I said then and now and at the beginning of this podcast, the most terrifying thing about Hereditary to me is that you cannot outrun your destiny, right? That, right. and apologies to people who haven't seen Hereditary yet, but that Tony Collette's mother had a plan in store for Tony Collette's children and there was nothing that Tony Collette could do uh, to get out of that history. And at the end of the hereditary, we see a victim kind of accept his fate, right? Um, depending on your interpretation. And, you know, Tony Collette is a very cathartic figure in hereditary because she struggles against her, her, her fate. And please go watch hereditary. But what, what it is is the oh. grandmother runs a satanic cult that wants to turn the son and uh, turn her son into like be reborn as a uh, follower of Satan, as a demon. As King Payman. As King Payman, correct. Yeah, now you're reminding me. and um, Which is slightly different than a purely satanic thing, but it's definitely malevolent. Right. Um, so much in the same way this movie has you know that's a level of generational trauma that's a that's a you know people often saw that as like a uh allusion to mental illness but just as it could be to mental illness with something that you inherit and passes down and perhaps can't escape it guilt shame anxiety these are also traumas that can be inherited and perhaps in the case of Bo in this film and in the case of Tony Collette and her children, they are unavoidable. That's a horror movie to me, Dave, that no matter how hard we try, if your mother or your genetic disposition puts that boat upside down on you, you can't flip it over. And it's interesting because, like I said, Tony Collette really struggles to flip that boat over. Whereas Bo, through most of the movie and possibly all the way until the end, is avoiding and resigned to that motherly trauma. Well, you know, even Midsummer uh, or Midsummer definitely deals in trauma. Correct. Uh, it has many of the same themes in terms of Florence Pugh's how she gets where she is. But I didn't want to get into that. You can if you want. You well, the thing I, I think the thing that's interesting again is you know we're three films into a career um, and several short films that all seem to deal in this idea of familial trauma now that's a huge thing in in horror movies now it has been for a while almost to the point where a lot of people are saying kind of enough is enough let's make horror movies about something other than your old mom and dad uh uh and uh and the family curse but um there are still some really great films being made smile came out last year was was really good along those lines um but i think that this uh idea of of Ari Aster returning to these themes 
of trauma as it's rooted in family is um is done again so honestly and so uh uh in depth you know there's such an attempt at unpacking uh that goes on um i i i think that this is a film that bears repeat watching and it's the kind of film that you're going to see people bring up in educational contexts that have to do with um, psychology and psychotherapy, uh, and uh, uh, as well as as well as in you know philosophy or even theology. It's it's such smart, empathetic filmmaking, and I, uh, I I'm really looking forward not only to his next thing but to uh, but to seeing this again. And I want to go back and rewatch Hereditary now. Yeah, there are a lot of things that like, not just the overall theme of like generational trauma that remind me of Hereditary, but the way that it's described, even specific moments and scenes, I think could be seen to mirror each other in the in the movie. Uh, I, you know, I told a few of those to you, Dave, about, you know, um, like, yeah, we, we talked about a few moments where we thought were very reminiscent of things that happened in Hereditary. Um I think that there's a lot to be said there. We could do a whole podcast on these two films and I could, I could work Midsummer in, but to me, the, the, the trauma in Midsummer is so acute, you know, <laughs> it's like something that, you know, if I rewatched it, would I be looking harder for, Oh, we could see it coming for generations and it is multi-generational, right? Cause the, her brother is involved, but, and her brother, her parents and her are involved, but uh, it didn't seem to be as at, on the, um, as much on the surface as in these two films where I just see a lot of the same uh, themes being repeated between them. And even like, like I said, some scenes and, and since I'm teasing it so hard, like one that really struck out to me is, you know, I think my favorite scene in hereditary. And I think a lot of people's favorite scene is when Tony Collette throws the um, binder, the, the notebook into the fire. And to me, that is a very similar scene and tone to what happens when a Bo and uh, Elaine have sex. Um, I, I think that those are two similar scenes to me. So though that's kind of what I, I had teased it so hard, Dave. I wanted to give one concrete example. Uh, but yeah, there are a lot of scenes that reminded me of Hereditary in this film and overall just the, the themes of generational trauma. Um, the introduction of the mother's portrait in um uh, Bo is Afraid is very reminiscent to me of the introduction of the apartment of the, I forget her name, of the cult member when she goes into the cult member's apartment and she sees the um, the mats and the pictures and things. I think those are kind of like big reveals of what's really going on. Um, so yeah, it's like, I, I can tell they're kind of written by the same person and I, I like both of these films a lot and I like the theme. I think the theme is 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 one that is truly horrifying and interesting. Hmm. Well, well, we talked about a lot. We talked about this a lot. What you know? We yeah. should do something light next. We should have done Renfield after this one. Um. So, can you escape your fate? Can you escape your generational trauma? Um. Not according to Ari Aster, Dave. Can we escape? <laughs> can we escape our fate of doing another episode? No. Um. You know, I think uh, the next one we're going to do is you know another tragedy. 
BlackBerry. We want to do a movie, you know, I work in tech. I work on products that I hope will last forever, but no product lasts forever. BlackBerry is a product that was riding the waves high and it's playing at the Chicago Film Critics Film Festival. So we're going to head on over there and watch BlackBerry and do it for our next episode. I look forward to it. Uh, Dave, did, did you ever have a BlackBerry? Um, I, I prefer raspberries, uh, you know, blueberries, boysenberries, uh, loganberries. Uh, I mean, when you go to Ikea and you get the loganberries, those are great. Uh, what about uh, elderberries? Strawberries. You do have a, a strong elderberry scent. I will, I I will say that. I used to make elderberry wine, uh, and I almost had some once. But uh, Well, when we go to France, there will be no shortage of of berries and elderberries and uh, weird, uh, what we consider weird berries that we don't eat so much here. You know, um, stay tuned for Blackberry. We'll be doing that next. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, the best way to get a hold of us is to head on over to mindframesfilm.com and fill out our contact us. That's also how you can be on the show if you want to be on the show and ramble along with us. Uh, if you want to contact us on Facebook, you can send us a Facebook message if you must. I will try to respond to you. And you Dave, you can too, because we share that account. Uh, we are at Mindframes Movies, facebook.com slash Mindframes Movies. Of course, you always look for the pink logo. Uh, our logo is always going to be pink. We can't change that, Dave, because we said it so many and so many times now. So our next logo is going to have to be pink or uh, something. Um, of course, we are always... We are always proud to be a part of the now playing network uh head on over to nowplaying.net you can find us there all of our latest and past episodes are up on there they usually do a better job of adding uh art than we do um you can you know there are other podcasts up there you can go and see christmas movies actually dave you've been on there director's club of course the flagship where you can um listen to in-depth coverage of in-depth reviews of your favorite directors past and present uh movie madness is over there uh eric childress's podcast who i hope that we will see <clears throat> at the uh at the film fest you know i mean i don't know if he knows who he, i am i think he kind of remembers my face but <laughs> would he know that i'm michael cockrell i'd probably i don't know he lets me into stuff so i guess he must remember me a little bit <laughs> but there are great podcasts over there please uh check it out uh, and thank you again, uh, Dave, you know, what do you want to say? Say one final thing about that big dick. <laughs> <laughs> that I really, really want to know what wound up happening to it. Are we going to see that at Sotheby's someday, like sold as part of a prop auction? It's a know? CGI. It's CGI, right? No, no, that was, I guarantee you there was a real dick. Uh, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll also, uh, I'll also say this. Not only do I wonder if we're going to see it at uh, Sotheby someday, was there somebody in there or was it animatronic? That's what I want to know. All right. I, I, you know, if we rewatch this day, we're going to have to see if I'm right and it's CGI or if you're right and it's, um, whatever real practical you're you're for sure you're for sure that it's it's real uh, all i'm saying is either way don't be a dick that's all i'm saying <laughs> all right <laughs> thank you for listening